1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a very interesting book published by the University of Nebraska Press titled The Grapes of Conquest, Race, Labour and the Industrialization of California Wine, 1769 to 1920, which I think is really interesting because we have a lot of these images of California wine country and it's beautiful and okay maybe now it's all about fires fine but we sort of have this public imaginary of what they are and it doesn't necessarily have a lot of questions about how we got here those questions are incredibly important to ask um speaking not just as a historian who always wants to know how we got here but also because of what we find when we dig into this history. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, Dr. Julia Ornelas Higdon, to tell us all about California wines and their history. So Julia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: My pleasure, Miranda. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Would you mind starting us off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain why you decided to write this book? Absolutely.
0: So I'm an associate professor of history in California, at California State University, Channel Islands. And like so many projects, this book started as a graduate seminar paper, which, of course, grew into the dissertation, which then became the book. But in many ways, this project is rooted in place, my own sense of place, my own sense of family history. I am the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of braceros, Mexican um, uh, workers who were in the United States in the 1940s and 50s. So I grew up with stories of hearing their experiences working in agriculture in California. So that really piqued my interest and I started graduate school knowing I wanted to write about ag and labor. But as is often the case, my my plans changed as I got into the archives, and this project actually was born out of a serendipitous conversation with family around a bottle of wine, and you know, I was plotting my my first graduate seminar paper, and my mother of all people mentioned, you know, the Chinese dug out wine tunnels in Napa and Sonoma. And I should mention, I am from Northern California. I grew up in Solano County, which is just over the hill from Napa and Sonoma. So when you are from where I am from, you spend a lot of time in wineries. Even as a child, if family come to visit you, friends are visiting from out of town, it's what you do. You take them to the world famous Napa and Sonoma Valleys. So since childhood, I had spent time in wineries, but I had never known that the Chinese laborers had dug the tunnels. Of course, I knew about their work in the railroads, their work in the gold rush and in um, urban California in the 19th century, but I never knew their connection to the wine industry. So that was my first pivot. And then as I began my research, I thought, oh, I'm gonna write a history of Napa and Sonoma and labor in the wine industry there. And what the archive told me, was that California's historic wine industry actually began in Southern California, not in Napa and Sonoma. And it was born out of the missions. This blew me away and I was hooked and I've been at it for longer than I care to admit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, And I think it raises it frames the discussion I think in a useful way um and and I'm glad you've investigated because now now we have this book that we get to talk about so if we start kind of at the beginning chronologically of the book um I'd love to link up the kind of iconographic California winemaking that as you mentioned in your own life we still very much have with another kind of bit of history that we do learn about California but maybe not this piece of it. So I'd love to ask you to tell us a bit about what role wine played in the Spanish Missions Project in the colonization of California?
0: Oh, that's such a great question, Miranda, uh, because as you pointed out, these are two iconic pieces of California history and culture, yet they're not often brought together and they really were deeply interconnected uh, because wine growing emerged in California directly from the Spanish mission project to colonize and conquer California natives. So in the 1770s, of course, we know the Franciscans arrived in 1769. And in the following decade, they they began to oversee the building of the missions in California. And I use the word oversee very specifically because of course, they did very little of the labor themselves. Um, It was done by conscripted California natives, and uh, by natives from Baja California who had been missionized previously and were brought up essentially as migrant workers to train natives in the northern part of California. So these Franciscan missions, as they're you know overseeing the construction of churches and mission buildings and dormitories, they needed a reliable supply of wine. This was absolutely fundamental to their uh, colonization and conversion project because they needed the wine to say the mass and to demonstrate transubstantiation to California natives. Of course, uh, the transformation of the body uh, of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, so the tenant of Catholicism. They needed this for conversion. So um, after they had planted, you know, fields of grains and gardens, because colonization also required that they keep people fed, right? Um, It's hard to colonize um, when people are hungry. So once a more regular supply of food had been established, they got to conscripting local California natives to clear land for vineyards, to plant grapes, harvest and crush the grapes. And, you know, this meant that they no longer had to rely on an irregular supply of wine coming from Mexico, So this process of wine growing really had the dual process of, one, producing wine for the mass, for conversion purposes, but it was also significant in that it allowed the Franciscans to Hispanicize Indians by forcing them to learn European agricultural practices. And at the same time, they're doing all of this work. California natives were strictly forbidden from enjoying any wine, which is literally the fruit of their labors, right? Um, They could not enjoy it legally under Spanish law outside the mass. So very early on, we see that wine in California is a tool of conquest. It's a tool of conversion. And it's also one of Spanish imperial control.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Both in terms of, um, as you said, the skills, the policing of time, right? You get the wine this time, but not that time. Um, and also, I think it's worth kind of emphasizing, as you do in the book, the colonization physically of the land, right? Vineyards take up rather a lot of space. Um, so thank you for bringing together, as you said, those two iconographic elements of California history that we we should put together more than we we do, because You've just explained kind of how much of an impact it has. I guess then that the next kind of obvious place to go, and I admit this is jumping over a lot of fabulous detail that's in the book. So anyone curious should definitely read the full book to get it all. But if we're thinking in terms of kind of time periods or key moments of transition, the next one obviously to ask you about is when This, when California stops being sort of a Spanish colony run by or overseen by the missions to becoming part of Mexico, what does that transition do in terms of winemaking and its use for these agricultural, but also political and racial purposes?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's such a great question. Um, You know, we've got a 50 year period of Spanish colonization in Alta California. And by the 1820s, Mexico has fought and won its independence from Spain. And as Mexico becomes this new liberalized uh, republic, the question is what's going to happen to the mission lands? These were millions of prime acreage, uh, Up and down Alta California. And, you know, for those of us who can imagine the geography of California, the missions are all along coastal California. So this is really prime um, agricultural land. And the intent of the missions had always been that the Franciscans were holding this land sort of like in trust for California natives. And eventually the idea was (laughs) that. California natives would assume control over that land as farmers. What actually happens, though, as the missions were secularized um, in the 1830s, is that they were distributed to Mexican Californios, i.e. the elite ruling class in California at the time. And they used the land for cattle ranching and some agricultural cultivation, including vineyards. So... What we see going on here is that California Natives are denied ownership of lands that were intended for them. And many of them ended up working on the same mission lands that they had labored on previously for decades, some of them. Only this time, the boss is a different person. It's not a Franciscan, it's a Mexican Californial landowner. So what this political transition ultimately does Is it creates a class of elite landowners and it continues the spanish exclusion of native peoples from enjoying the full rights of citizenship so for california natives very little changes for them in mexican california but what does change for the wine industry is that for the first time folks who are making wine on the ground here were able to sell that wine freely on the market. And this is because the Mexican government had liberalized its trade laws, had opened its ports for international trade. And this was absolutely huge. Um, This meant that Californios could sell their wine to European and uh, Euro-American traders from the Eastern United States. It meant that this market encouraged people to expand their vineyard acreage and increase production of wine. And most significantly, it opened California's borders to immigration. So for the first time we have migrants, mostly men coming in from Europe, and the eastern states. And they're setting up shop here too. They too are, you know, purchasing land, planting vineyards, becoming winemakers. And this further stratifies uh, California society and creates very distinct race uh, and class hierarchies here from which the natives are excluded from, you know, enjoying citizenship.
1: So it's, In fact, that exact point of the kind of influx of people that I'd like to ask you about, because I think if we're doing this imagining of California um, and think about where the missions, well, still are, it's kind of hard to work backwards and remember that California didn't used to have the big cities it's so famous for today. So if we've got all these people coming in, that seems to be kind of an obvious impetus for urbanization projects and more infrastructure. What tensions did this create with winemaking and the kind of political and racial aspects of it when suddenly there are enough people that you you, you need cities and you need to think about how they interact with agricultural work?
0: Yeah. And, you know, what, what really rushes this project of urbanization that you're talking about, Miranda, is really the gold rush um, and previous to that American conquest. You know, California just... Becomes a giant boomtown, especially the northern part of the state and is put on the fast track to statehood by 1850. So as you pointed out, um, this influx of people requires infrastructure and it really fuels the the rapid expansion of California cities, especially San Francisco. Um, So as winemakers are you know, expanding vineyard acreage and production in the 1840s and 1850s and into the 1860s, really, what they needed was infrastructure to allow them to transport their pro- product from the rural areas of California, where it was, of course, produced, to San Francisco, from where it would be put on ships to be shipped to other parts of the United States, um, as well as other parts of the world. So this meant that California really had to quickly lay down new railroad tracks, build roads. And, you know, we even see the creation of a new port in Southern California to shorten the distance by which the grapes needed to travel. This meant lobbying state and local governments for money to complete these projects, you know, which were really in support of private businesses. Um, So we have that happening, you know, if we're zooming in on the wine industry, but if we zoom out a little bit, we also see that in the mid-19th century, Americans were fearful about the consequences of this increased urbanization. So there's this you know, fear that young American men are, are going to you know, spend too much time in cities is going to be dangerous for American citizenship. So what wine growers do is they promote notions of agricultural citizenship. And, you know, looking at the sources from the time period, I'm talking about things like trade journals and newspapers. We see prominent growers, men like um, Augustan Harasti, who is, you know, still notorious um, in the wine industry today. We see men like him encouraging white Euro-Americans to migrate to California from the Eastern States, from Europe, specifically to take up viticulture. So we see these connections between land ownership, cultivation, and citizenship, and we see wine growers on the ground here in California using their industry and promoting viticulture as a way to really racially white in California, and to protect against the dangers of urbanization that Americans were talking about. But then, you know, we have to ask ourselves, who's doing all the work, right? Who's building this infrastructure? And much like the Spanish, much like Mexican Californios, it's not Americans. It's, it's really the Chinese at this period. It's Chinese immigrant men who are doing the work to build these railroads, to plant vineyards, to uh, construct roads and ports, and while they're doing this work that is so fundamental to the development and the economic success of American California, they are living in segregated communities around the state. So many cities and towns in early American California had a Chinatown. So it's, it's a strange relationship where they are re- absolutely dependent on these men, on this class of laborers to get things done. <laughs> But at the same time, they're rejected, formally rejected from citizenship and from really just being um, embraced as members of the communities in their respective cities and towns.
1: Mm. Thank you for taking us through that. I think I wouldn't be surprised if listeners are making some comparisons to how kind of where people live and who gets to live where, even today in California, um, is linked to those patterns. So fascinating if maybe frustrating to hear just how far back that has gone um but i want to sort of stay on this period for a moment to kind of surface uh, or poke out, i suppose a few things you've just mentioned to go into more detail um obviously the transition from being part of mexico to being part of the us so some amount of change in sovereignty and citizenship there and also very much the kind of continued arrival of Immigrants from the Eastern United States or directly from Europe. And so the kind of default um, culture there saying, oh, we're now part of the US. We're looking towards places like New York, not to places like Mexico City. How do these sorts of changes? You talked about kind of Chinese immigrants being rejected formally from citizenship as well. How do these sorts of changes change the wine industry, but also kind of what is California? If it's no longer part of Mexico and now part of the United States, kind of who is Californian? What, what does that mean?
0: Yeah, it's such a complicated question. Um, and what, you know, connects to the question of what it means to be an American in the 1850s and 60s. Um, because certainly the immigrant groups that we're talking about, uh, coming here to California were, were received quite differently than they would have been in other parts of the states. And one of the books I uh, one of the groups I talk about extensively in the book are German immigrants who came to California in the 1850s and 60s were well known in the wine industry and were embraced as American citizens and as modernizers. Um, Some of my favorites to discuss are, of course, the the wine firm of Kohler and Frohling, two German uh, wine uh, musicians, immigrants to San Francisco who randomly decided to start planting grapes and making wine and were wildly successful. And of course, Leonard J. Rose, uh, who settled in Los Angeles. These were all German immigrant winemakers who really made a name for themselves growing vineyards in the Los Angeles area. So, uh, you know, in their individual businesses, yes, they were successful, but what I found it fascinating was how California growers and trade groups, such as the California State Agricultural Society, for example, celebrated men like Kohler and Froehling or or Rose, and they praised them and held them up as um, model examples in their newspapers, in their trade journals. And the reason they celebrated them was for their use of modern agricultural methods that moved the industry beyond Spanish and Mexican viticultural techniques. So one example would be... um, Kohler and Frohling, who were constantly held up as an example for their use of mechanized grape crushers and stemmers. And this was just seen as cutting edge technology. But the reason Euro-Americans in California found this so uh, appealing is that it really divorced this modern industry from the Spanish and Mexican practice of relying on Indian feet to crush the grapes, which of course is a very old world method. Uh, but at the time in the mid 19th century, this use of, of Native people to crush the harvest was seen as unsavory, it was seen as unsanitary. And you know, given the racist attitudes at the time, it was seen as backwards and barbaric. So Euro-Americans in California celebrated these German immigrants. Um, They praised them and embraced them for modernizing and for racially whitening California, for improving it from this antiquated Spanish past and also literally um, overriding the population of Mexican Californios, really erasing that history and replacing the people with a new and improved population, that was, of course, white, and that was very appealing.
1: The images of the feet really still can't get over that one. I think it just sums up so much of this um, to understand the different attitudes and the impact they have. So thank you for explaining um, kind of, it is a very complex set of dynamics, but making it make sense to us. Um, I'd like to keep on this idea of sort of cities and different populations and the impact, but I don't want to get yelled at by the people from Southern California, um, because we've mostly talked about the North so far. So can we move south down to Anaheim? Um, Because you talk really interestingly in the book about how the vineyards here really have quite an impact um, on kind of land and land use and immigration and citizenship, both in the short term, but also with some longer term consequences as well. So can you take us to Anaheim?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, today, Anaheim, we know it as it's the happiest place on earth. It's home to Disney. And you know, I think a lot of people know that it used to be orange orchards. But what is not as well known is that before there were oranges, there were grapes. And in fact, Anaheim was founded as a vineyard colony. And this, its origin story is absolutely fascinating. So Kohler and Frolling, the wine firm I mentioned a few minutes ago, Uh, was doing so well that by the late 1850s they wanted to expand their production but they didn't want to deal with investing in further vineyards and managing that they wanted to do what many winemakers do today which is purchase grapes from vineyardists so that was their plan however there were not sufficient grapes on the market for them to do this so they hatched a plan with a a surveyor based in Los Angeles, a man named uh, George Hansen, to found a wine colony outside of Los Angeles. And with Hansen, they convinced a group of German immigrants who were up in San Francisco to buy shares in what would be a joint stock company. And these investors signed on to become vineyardists. Um, And what's interesting about this settlement is that the German colonists who bought into it stayed in San Francisco until the town was completely built and until the vineyards were planted. So. They did none of the work, the hard work, the rugged work of, you know, clearing the land for vineyards, of planting. Others did it. And these were hired workers. Some of them were uh, Yaqui natives from other parts of the Southwest. Some of them were uh, Sonoran Mexican migrant workers. And many of them were Chinese immigrants who were also brought down from San Francisco to do the work of building Anaheim. Okay, so we've got, you know, this is, I'm setting a scene here in the late 1850s and early 1860s. And what happened is this group of German immigrants, none of whom had agricultural experience, they were urban dwellers in Germany, none of them had any experience making wine, we have records of one man who was a beer maker brewed beer in Germany. Uh, So this group of pretty inexperienced people and yet their vineyards flourished and Anaheim grapes and Anaheim wine soon became renowned across California. so that's, that's a really interesting change there. We see change in terms of land use. This land had previously been used mostly for cattle ranching, although some uh, California neighbors around Anaheim did grow grapes. So we see that transition from uh, cattle ranching, of course, native land use before that. But we also see Anaheim's residents changing the racial makeup of Southern California. I mean, when they first moved in uh, locally, Anaheim was referred to as Campo Aleman or German country. And it was really seen as this uh, little dot of, of German European culture surrounded uh, by a sea of Mexican Californios and Mexican California culture. But slowly this German influence spread. And like Kohler and Froling, like Leonard J. Rose, Americans celebrated Anaheim's residents for really bringing European culture to Southern California, and more significantly for helping to racially whiten the region. And this was such a different reception than german immigrants were receiving in other parts of the united states where they would have not been embraced as citizens where they would have been more decidedly foreign in california that was not the the case um and really when i went into the archive you know i found again newspaper articles um immigrant pamphlets encouraging people to, to migrate to California. And they referred to Germ, uh, to the Germans in Anaheim. And they would say things like, oh, there's German spoken in the schools here, and they, they retain a German teacher, but these people are American at heart. So again, really embracing them as citizens. Um, but, you know, in the longer term, Anaheim is significant because what started as a colony expanded to become one of Southern California's most prominent centers of fruit cultivation, first with grapes and, and later with oranges. And as Anaheim grew, the city really retained its connections to wine culture, even after the town's vineyards dried up. So, for example, in uh, the early 20th century, as the United States is kind of inching towards prohibition, many of Anaheim's surrounding cities went dry and Anaheim remained uh, what was known as a wet town, a town where alcohol trade and sales were still legal. And that really is a connection to its founding as a wine colony. And this, of course, attracted many residents from neighboring communities whose own towns would not allow them to enjoy beer and wine. So they would go to Anaheim uh,
1: to get that for themselves. Wow, that really is quite a legacy. Um, And and really such an interesting impact as well. I'm not sure I would have thought that making beer in Germany would translate that well to wine in Southern California, but okay. All right. Um, I'd like to ask you a bit more about uh, the racial hierarchies aspect of this, because obviously, if... Immigrants in Northern California are considered so good at um, this sort of labor, for example, Chinese immigrants, that they're brought down to Southern California. For anyone who hasn't been to California, it might sound like that's a small journey. I would recommend looking at a map. It's not. Um, That signifies some amount of commitment here from wine industrialists to um, essentially, I guess, target a particular type of labor. How then did that work if there's kind of wine industrialists who are like, yes, we need these people to do the thing, or we so know we need that, that we're willing to move them all the way down to Anaheim, versus this project you've been talking us to, to us about as well, about kind of, well, citizenship is white, and what it means to be American is a lot more about being white. H- how do these things work together or don't, can you walk us through this seeming contradiction? Absolutely. And
0: I think the word you just used, contradiction, is so important to understanding uh, this quagmire here because there was so many contradictions between the rhetoric surrounding the wine industry and the reality of what its labor force looked like. So I first, you know, I think it's useful to talk a bit about this notion of Mediterranean culture um, earlier. I think I alluded a little bit to American fears about California and the West. Um, and at the time, you know, in the mid to late 19th century, Americans living in the East coast really questioned um, this former Mexican territory and whether it should be part of the United States. There were fears about spanish mexican catholic culture that existed in california um, and how americans were in a, going to integrate the spanish mexican catholic place into a white protestant country so one of the ways that wine industrialists engage in this conversation is by emphasizing the mediterranean roots of their industry and you know this Historians have talked extensively about these these Mediterranean conversations, these uh, movements in the late 19th century to uh, create a Mediterranean California. That's not new. But the wine industry component of it is really interesting because these wine growers emphasize the Italian, the French and the generally European connections to California wine. And they did this. To distance, again, to distance their industry and their work from its origins in Spanish California past. And to make the case that the wine industry was helping to civilize and to refine the American West. Now... As you pointed out, you know, the contradiction and the great irony in all of this is that they were relying on immigrant populations of color that European Americans found unsavory, um, particularly Chinese men who were coming off of working on the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, and of course, you know, I use the word unsavory, but it was it was far more than that. We see that Americans go so far as to pass Chinese exclusion by 1882. So there's a really um, violent at times nativist reaction to Chinese men uh, that expanded in the 1870s leading up to Chinese exclusion in, in 82. So as agricultural businessmen, these wine growers... Praised the merits of hiring Chinese vineyard workers. Um, I, I mentioned Augustin Harazti earlier. He was one of the first to publicly, in the trade journals, in local newspapers, encourage others to hire Chinese workers specifically because he, he laid out the case. You know, he could pay them lower wages than he could pay white men, but They were reliable and they were efficient. So there's this, you know, capitalist business argument for hiring Chinese workers. But as the the anti-Chinese nativist pushback grew in the 1870s, they got tremendous, tremendous anger from their neighbors, as well as nativist anti-Chinese groups that had sprung up around the state by that point. And one of my favorite examples that I talk about in the book is that of Leland Stanford. Yes, that Leland Stanford, um, who founded uh, Stanford University. In addition um, to his many careers as a senator, uh, you know, as a railroad executive, and later as a university founder, he was a vineyardist. In uh, the late 19th century, he purchased Vina Ranch, which was way up in northern California, north of San- Sacramento, in Butte County. And this was a massive vineyard. And in the local newspapers, after he purchased the ranch, there there is article after article, letter to the editor after letter to the editor of his neighbors just lambasting him for hiring Chinese workers. It's truly racist bitterness against the Chinese migrant workers who had come up to work in his vineyard. So... What we see is just a lot of tension here, tension between wine growers rhetoric that they're helping to civilize California, that they're helping to racially whiten California and the contradiction between that and their practice, which is actually to rely on uh, racialized workers who were not eligible for citizenship, who broader communities across the state really rejected. So there is tremendous irony and tension here.
1: Yeah, no, really, definitely uh, makes the word contradiction seem very apt. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, you talked a bit about the 1870s, obviously, and in the book, uh, there's there's rather a lot happening to wine industrialists from kind of that period, the 1920s, we've we've mentioned this. We you mentioned prohibition. So, do you want to kind of briefly give us an overview of the the, the many things that they're sort of struck by in these few decades, and how they attempt to respond?
0: Absolutely, it is just um, a jam packed, <laughs> action filled, challenging period. If we're looking about mm, the 1870s through the 1920s, and what we see is wine industrialists face. What I would call three major crises that fall under uh, the umbrellas of environmental, economic, and cultural challenges. Uh, So the first, environmental, uh, several vine diseases absolutely devastate the wine industry. I had mentioned Anaheim made this transition from grapes to wine, uh, from, excuse me, from grapes and wine to citrus. Well, why? Why, if they're doing so well, why are they ripping up? grapevines and replacing them with orange trees. Well, the reason is Anaheim disease, which we now know as Pierce's disease. This absolutely destroyed Anaheim's wine industry in the mid-1880s, and it just never recovered. Um, And that's what caused that transition. Um, And anecdotally, I'll share that the soils in Anaheim are still, you know, you really can't grow grapes successfully there. Um, and in my research I came across a tidbit that Disney has vineyards planted in its park in Anaheim yet they die every every year and have to be replanted. Of course I tried to get confirmation but the Disney Corporation did not did not comply with that so that that history and that disease is still there in the soil. So that's the first major environmental catastrophe. And that sweeps Southern California beginning in Anaheim. And from that point, the industry was really focused in Northern California, but vineyards in Sonoma and Napa were facing their own crisis. And that of course is a more well-known phylloxera pest, which spread across vineyards in that area and just absolutely wrecked havoc there until French and American wine growers collaborated and were able to graft phylloxera-resistant vines onto European grape stock. So that environmental catastrophe was challenging, but um, they were able to meet it head on, and the industry persevered. Okay, so that's the first umbrella of crises. The second one <laughs> was an economic one, and that is that vineyardists, were really overproducing grapes um, at the same time that the United States was facing two major financial crises in the 1870s and then in the early 1890s. And this just meant that the market for grapes and wine was highly volatile. It was unstable. So there were a lot of ups and downs. And then the third cultural, what I would call cultural crisis is of course, the uh, rising temperance movement in the United States, which ramped up in the 1870s um, with the rise of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and they advocated for the full abolition of alcohol. So how do wine growers respond to these crises? Well, one of the main things they do They organize new trade groups, and and this was an important part of of wine history in the 19th century, this reliance on organizing trade groups. Um, So we see new trade groups emerge, like the California Board of Viticultural Commissioners, uh, which was supported by the state government, or the California Wine Association, which was the first vertically integrated wine company in California. Um, So these new trade groups are able to meet these challenges head on. And in respects to the temperance movement, for example, they begin in the late 19th century doing something that is counterintuitive to us as as modern consumers of alcohol. What they did is they advertised wine as a temperate alcoholic beverage, um, one that could actually prevent drunkenness and not cause it uh, relative to, say, harder alcohol spirits like rum or whiskey. So they released ad campaigns and treatises that encouraged White American women actually to serve wine with meals, and this, according to wine industrialists, would both civilize the American palate, right, and refine the American home. But more importantly, it could prevent drunkenness. Um, so I always it makes me chuckle a little bit um, this use of wine um, to to prevent alcoholism and, and the, the abuse of liquor.
1: It's really interesting to think about and to hear about really the ways in which they try to adjust to, I mean, any one of those would be a pretty big crisis for an industry, um, much less uh, the, the multiple aspects of it. So I would like to ask more about the transition to citrus, because as you've laid out, there are kind of reasons this isn't going so well. What are some of the, you've mentioned a few already, but what are some of the other ways that the wine industry really laid the foundation for the citrus industry?
0: Yeah, you know, in the book, I'm really arguing that the wine industry is this Important bridge that that we as historians haven't really looked at. This bridge between you know the missions and modern agribusiness, which historians you know have traditionally identified as being um, launched with the citrus industry in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. And I'm saying no. I I actually think we need to go further back and look at wine growing as planting the seeds of modern ing- agribusiness and. I argue that this is really true because if we look at the wine industry, we see key hallmarks of modern agribusiness. Things like um, it's the industry's growth from concentrated land ownership. Wine growers and really agriculture in California was never a place where small family farms flourished. You know, we don't see Jeffersonian yeoman farms here. It's really large-scale concentrated land ownership. So that's one key hallmark. Another is this reliance on racialized migrant workers, workers of color who could be and were paid um, substandard wages, who often lived in substandard housing that that white Euro-American men would not put up with. Third, um, we see this Integration of modern scientific agriculture as well as irrigation. You know, California has a Mediterranean climate with low rainfall. Uh, so making sure that the vines got sufficient water was key absolutely key from the beginning. Um, You know, we were talking about Anaheim earlier. In uh, Hansen's design of the town when he laid it out as surveyor, um, and in even going further back into negotiating the deal in which he purchased the land for the Vineyard Society, making sure that they had access to water from the Santa Ana River was absolutely fundamental to making sure that this could thrive. And of course, the modern scientific agriculture. Um, In my research, I found a lot of connections between uh, wine growers across the state and researchers at the University of California uh, College of Agriculture. So they're really relying on modern science and research to optimize their their product. And then finally, in connection to that, I think that viticulturists in California, you know, their use of professionalized trade groups is also really significant. You know, in building networks across the straight state, state uh, communication channels between different wine companies and different vineyardists. All of this is so important in uh, creating infrastructure that citrus growers could build on. So these are, you know, these are all hallmarks of modern industrialized agribusiness. And I'm arguing that their roots are found in the wine industry across the line 19th century, not necessarily just in citrus. Hmm. Huh.
1: Well, I think given the chronology, the history that we've covered in the discussion, and of course, the much more detailed version in the book, um, it would be hard to disagree with that, I think, given the evidence you've put together. Um, But if I could ask in the next question, instead of kind of looking back from the citrus industry backwards, if we could look from the wine industry forward for a moment, because we started this kind of discussing that while the vineyards today are are, are very well known, this history might not be and I am kind of wondering how do the vineyards themselves that are very much still there how do they discuss their origins do they go back to the history you've been telling us I mean what would happen if you went to one of these vineyards and either asked them kind of what's the story or do they offer it without you asking like what does that look like?
0: Yeah, oh, that's such a great question. Um, because, you know, California wine is so important to the state economy. I mean, we're looking at an industry that today is a $40 billion piece of California's economy. And we have one of the largest economies in the world. So this is a really highly significant um, chunk of business in the state. Um, and I also, you know, I want to circle back to something you brought up at the of our interview, which was kind of the the exclusivity of wine, right? For many Americans, wine is something that is exclusive. We associate it with elite populations. It's often associated with white racial groups. It is not associated with people of color, yet these are the people who literally planted the seeds of the industry in the 18th century, and they're the folks who continue to support the industry today. Um, So if we put that in conversation with the history of the industry, we see that its past really challenges the racial and class connotations that accompany California wine in the 20th and 21st century. So despite the importance of the multiracial origins of the wine industry, I think they're not often a meaningful part of the conversation surrounding contemporary wineries and in contemporary understandings of the historic industry. With a few exceptions, California natives and Chinese workers are often absent. one exception to this is one that I discuss in the epilogue of the book, which is a visit that I took to Buena Vista Winery in January of 2020, uh, right before our world changed. And I was there on vacation. I full stop. I was not there to do research. Um, I was just enjoying, you know, a day in tasting wine. And as I came up to Buena Vista Winery, which is a historic winery founded by Augustin Harasti in the mid-19th century, I noticed that they had uh, what they called a journey through history. And this is a winery that has really capitalized on the notoriety surrounding its founder and its historic origins. So on this walk through history, they had placards where visitors could read about one Chinese worker or one native Californian. but these these were really cursory and they were they were quite romanticized, um, uh, you know, written for people there to enjoy a leisurely day of wine tasting. So I would say by and large, this history is not terribly talked about. And I would also say that while wine, owners, the owners of wineries are becoming more diverse. And we see this through um, the founding of MAVA, which is the Mexican American Vintners Association. We're starting to see more public facing winemakers and wine owners. We're seeing that diversity. We're seeing it celebrated. I would say that 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 conversation is not really trickling down to contemporary laborers who are largely Mexican American and Mexican guest workers who come up annually to work the harvest. These folks are really excluded from the public face of the wine industry, and uh, that's a real shame because their labor is absolutely fundamental to the success of this industry. I said it was a you know roughly forty billion dollar a year industry, yet they're not part of the public facing image to which consumers are aware. You know they're not they're not part of those public conversations
1: and that and that's a real shame well but also a great reason we have your book so that we can at least know some of it even and maybe hopefully it will trickle in to the public conversation so thank you very much for taking us right back from the beginning kind of all the way up to what vineyards are currently doing or not doing today um I do, however, have one final question. We've talked about the past and the present. If we could look towards the future for a moment, um, but on maybe a less massive level than the entire state of uh, vineyards in California, what might you be working on now that this book is out in the world? Whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about wine. Um, Is there anything you'd like to preview for us? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, So I am currently enjoying
0: a a much needed sabbatical and um, enjoying the creativity and respite that comes with that. And I am continuing to turn my eye towards agribusiness. You know, so much of the historiography on agriculture in California is really focused on the southern part of the state. And that's because of uh, the success of citrus. And I would like to turn to agriculture and land use in late 19th century Northern California, specifically the outlying counties of the Bay Area. Um, I'm so curious to understand how lands were historically used for cultivation of grains and fruit orchards. I'm curious about native land use. I'm fascinated by the groups that came together in uh, in these orchards to provide labor. Uh, We see really diverse groups coming together, Mexicans, Italians, Japanese and Filipino workers, for example. And then I'm curious to circle back to the present and see how these historic farmlands are used today for agritourism and wine tourism outside of Napa and Sonoma, um, parts of, uh, for folks who are more familiar with California's geography, um, Alameda County, Solano County, I'm also curious, you know, we have, speaking of of major industries in California, tech. And what many people outside of California don't know is, you know, 40 years ago, what is now, you know, major tech headquarters, those were farms, um, not terribly long ago. So I just am fascinated by questions of changing land use and who occupies the land and who controls it. And we'll see where that takes me.
1: Well, I think it'll take you in some cool directions because that was a fascinating preview. So best of luck with that project. Um, But of course, while you are exploring all of those facets, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Grapes of Conquest, Race, Labor, and the Industrialization of California Wine, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Julia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Miranda.